Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, July 2nd, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Squatron Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, uh, let's dive into this because we're getting to this a little bit later in the week um, and talk about what we've been doing. Uh, I haven't been watching a lot recently. I've been out and about, though. I have. I, I went um, on Saturday. There was the opening of a Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse art show at Gallery Nucleus, which is in L.A. somewhere. And uh, I'm not sure if you guys know this, but I loved Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It was my number one film of last year. Unfortunately, Sony, the way the rights work, Sony does not uh, make much money uh, from merchandise. Most of the money from merchandise is made by Disney. That's why they're building a Spider-Man ride in Disneyland um, because Disney you know, makes a majority of that money. And that is the reason why you cannot find good Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse 
merchandise. I think there's basically just an art book, which sold out pretty quick. Um, so uh, if you need to get a T-shirt, you need to go to like one of those T-Fury unofficial sites. And I was really excited for this art show because this meant that I could actually hang, you know, one of my favorite movies on my wall. And I, I, I went there. We made a video about it. I will link that in the show notes. Uh, there was a, a lot of amazing art and some of it, including some prints, are still available online. Uh, you can find that uh, linked in the show notes. Uh, and I bought a piece, which I'm really happy about. Um, but OK, uh, on, besides that, I also went to Disneyland because, of course, I did. And uh, they finally opened their new Inside Out ride. This is a part of Pixar Pier, which I think opened over a year ago. And uh, this is basically there was this ride in a Bugs Land called Flix Flyers, which is kind of like the spinny ride. You get into these little vehicles that get lifted up off the ground and it spins around in a circle, kind of like Astro Orbiter or Dumbo or any of those kind of kitty rides. Uh, when a Bugs Land shut down, you know, they're making it into Marvel superhero world or whatever they're going to call that. They basically moved it over to Pixar Pier and rethemed it under the Inside Out uh, franchise. Um, and, you know, I mean, it is kind of disappointing that we don't have an Inside Out ride, like a proper, like, Inside Out dark ride. Uh, but I did get to ride this. I had to wait 45 minutes because it was opening day of this ride, uh, which I don't think this ride is worth 45 minutes. But um, I will say that I was surprised at how much uh, fun this uh, little spinny uh, kid ride is. And uh, again, I also did a we did a video of our adventure to to visit this ride, which I will link in the show notes. You can check that out. And, uh, and, and actually, Jacob, you might want to check this out. They opened up a Haunted Mansion art. Uh, gallery over at the Disney Gallery in Disneyland. We, we, we videotaped some of this in this video as well, and it's featuring all like early concept art from the making of the Haunted Mansion, even like stuff from the days when it was supposed to be a walkthrough attraction and not be, you know, uh, in, in you know, riding in a dune buggy. Uh, oh, my credit card is so lucky you don't live in California, Peter. Oh, no, you can't buy any of this. This is like literally oh, okay. them f- pulling out stuff from the archives. And Well, like, then just... my spot-free criminal record is fine that I'm not living <laughs> in California. Otherwise, I'd be stealing it all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry I'm going along with all this theme park stuff. But uh, while I was there, we also did go to Galaxy's Edge again. I think this is probably my 10th time. And um, we put together a video about uh, some secrets of uh, photos that – there's, there's a lot of interesting things that people don't know about. Galaxy's Edge is kind of a place where you got to kind of learn about things. Like, there's not signs posted telling you how to, you know, enjoy Galaxy's Edge. So there's a lot of secrets to discover. And we put together this video basically showing how to get some cool photos that they don't advertise in Galaxy's Edge. I'll link that in the show notes. And uh, lastly, on Sunday, I was going to go this weekend – Netflix turned the Santa Monica Pier into a pier from Stranger Things 3. It was a promotion to promote that that new uh, season of the show, which Chris talked about earlier this week. And um, I was planning on going down there on Sunday. Um, I think it was just a bunch of, like, photo ops and stuff like that. And there was, like, a vending machine where you could buy uh, new Coke out of the vending machine. Um, but... My uh, my plans were thwarted when uh, it turned out I, I looked on social media and the line was cut off before noon on 
on uh, Sunday, and it was running till like I think 10 p.m. So it seemed like everybody in LA was excited to experience this uh, Th- Stranger Things pure event. I did not get to experience it, uh, but looking at the photos, it didn't look that exciting. So I'm not sure I missed out on anything. Jacob, uh, what have you been up to? Uh, as we've discussed in the podcast briefly before, this is a uh, skeleton crew year at uh, Comic-Con for us. It's going to be just me, HT, and a few freelancers covering this year because of so many studios sitting it out. Uh, it's also the first year where I've been essentially spearheading the Comic-Con planning. Usually that's Peter's job, uh, so but I've been sort of taking it over this year because I'll be there on the ground. And uh, Peter, planning Comic-Con <laughs> is hard. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this. Planning Comic-Con is the most headache and anxiety-inducing thing I think I've ever done while I'll be on SlashFilm.com. It's probably, honestly, the worst thing to plan for out of anything over the year, I think. Yeah, and it doesn't help that like so little of the schedule has been revealed. We came and make our full plans, and we're just I'm just emailing publicists and just asking when things are happening, if we, if we can get tickets for press. And once I'm I, – I'll put it this way – I don't mind being in the storm. I, I mind planning for the storm and batting down the hatches and putting boards to the windows, which is what I'm doing right now. Once we're in there, it's going to be fine. But trying to prepare for it and get everything lined up so we can bring to you, dear listener and readers, uh, the best possible coverage. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I did go shoe shopping, Peter, because uh, my trusty boots, uh, I have I have two boots to wear at Comic-Con. My uh, fancy, nice cowboy boots, which because uh, they're very comfortable, and my sturdier boots for my feet start to hurt. And my sturdy boots are the ones that fell apart at Epcot earlier this year when I was at uh, Disney Junket. So um, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, I want you guys to guess how hard it is to shop for size 17 shoes in the United States of America. Uh, Ooh, uh, man, 17. That is tough. I, I wear 13, and it's difficult for me, so I can't even imagine. Yeah, uh, I'm very, very lucky because there is a storefront in Austin. I believe it's just called Big Shoes. And <laughs> it's very small. You can walk in, it's like... Very, very. They have a massive warehouse space because they ship internationally. I talked to the clerk uh, while I was in there. Eighty percent of their sales are outside of Texas because they're one of the very few places that ship internationally for shoes larger than size fifteen. So they get orders from China and Europe and Asia from people who can't get American shoes in large sizes. So I'm very fortunate I can go in there and try things on. But uh, they are available, you know, the ship internationally. But like, I went to REI. I went to um, other places looking for like strong, sturdy hiking boots. So my feet won't die at Comic Con. And literally the only place that can serve me is a specialty store that I'm very fortunate happens to be in my city. But the good news is that I will now have feet that will not die at Comic-Con. So um, it's also a PSA. If you're going to Comic-Con, bring nice shoes and break them in. Do not do not wear something that's going to be uncomfortable because you'll be standing for a long time. Uh, Peter, tell about the time you found me standing in line and uh, about the die of heat stroke. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, wait, were you standing or sitting? I was standing. You're standing, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was at Comic Con. Wait, yeah. but I have a question for you, Jacob. Yeah. Um, I traditionally think of boots as being less comfortable if you're gonna be walking and being on your feet for a long period of time. Is that? Am I wrong? Uh, for, I think it's gonna vary from people's feet. Uh, but for me, sneakers are great for like long term. If I'm gonna be running or or moving for less than an hour. Um, I want sneakers. If I'm going to be standing for eight hours straight or in line or moving constantly, I need boots. Um, they are they are built to, uh, you know, they're built for long term comfort. And that's why you take them hiking and why you take them, you know, on rocky surfaces, because they're meant to withstand more punishment. But, you know, your mileage will vary. I personally have found that uh, boots of any kind uh, are kinder on my feet than sneakers anytime. 
the the other thing, I, uh, and I might actually come down to Comic Con, Jacob, because I'm not sure I can miss this Marvel. Do we know Marvel is going to be there? I guess Deadline uh, said Marvel is going to be there. Deadline reported they're going to be there, and Marvel Entertainment, you know, the TV and comics division, has uh, has already announced their very sad <laughs> slate. Uh, but Marvel uh, Studios has not announced anything yet uh, for them. But if they announce it, you know, Saturday's a blank slate. They can own the entire weekend if they just announced it and, and took that spot. Yeah, I feel like I need to be there to get your reactions to stuff for the podcast. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, B- Brad, what have you been up to? Um, last week, I went over to Detroit to check out the Lonely Island in concert. Uh, this is something that I've wanted to see for a long time. This is the first time that they've ever toured. There was a time a few years ago, I want to say like three or four years ago, where they were supposed to be doing this uh, concert in Chicago. And a couple friends and I had tickets for it. It was gonna, supposed to be their first ever concert, and I was really excited for it. And they ended up canceling it because uh, of scheduling issues. So it took them this long to finally come back around and do an official concert. So they they have a small tour uh, that they've been doing in c- certain areas of the U.S. And they weren't doing a concert in Chicago this time. So I had to buy a ticket for the show in Detroit. So, um, so me and a few few friends went up there, and it was it was just exactly what I wanted it to be. It was it was awesome. Um, Akiva Schaefer, Yorman Tacconi, and Andy Stamberg uh, were all there. They did songs off of the Lonely Island albums. They did uh, a few songs from the new Bash Brothers Experience uh, special they did on Net- for Netflix. They did uh, a couple songs from Popstar. Um, I wish they would have done a-, a couple more songs from Popstar. But what was cool is that the songs they did for Popstar, um, they used the exact same like video graphics that you see in the movie. So like the-, the-, the graphics where he throws Thor's hammer like at the screen before doing humble and then all the same like uh lyric t- um text and graphics they did for um the uh the bin laden song and yeah it was just a really fun concert they they had random uh comedy bits uh here and there and then the the one thing that was a little bit of a bummer to me was uh when they did lazy sunday i had seen a couple previous uh um venues or at least one of them had chris parnell with them for lazy sunday uh, but this one, Chris Parnell wasn't there, and so they brought out Detroit rapper Danny Brown, who apparently is rather famous in, in Detroit and in, in the rap scene. Um, I'm not super into hip-hop, so I was not familiar with him, but he came out and did Chris Parnell's part. And then for the songs where they had people like Justin Timberlake and Lady Gaga uh, for the series of songs featuring Andy Samberg and Justin Timberlake as those two uh, personas in those music videos, they used... Uh, Muppets, basically, for Justin Timberlake and Lady Gaga, which was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, it was overall, it was a really, really fun concert. And I, I would definitely uh, see them again at some point if they ever decided to do another tour. Very cool. HT, what have you been up to? Um, I have been keeping up with rock climbing more. This is a hobby that I've kind of uh, uh flirted with before and um I have, I have a lot of family who really loves to rock climb um but I've it's a very expensive hobby and I never really got around to it but recently I went to a rock climbing gym near me uh through ClassPass which is a, a subscription service that I've also talked about re- uh, on the podcast previously but um I went there and I was able to buy some 
off the rack climbing shoes. The shoes are often the biggest expense when it comes to rock climbing because you have to rent them. And um, this time, now that I own my own shoes, I'll be able to go and basically go for free, which I'm very excited about. And I really love rock climbing. Um, it's a, a sport that is um, more intuitive, I guess I would say. I enjoy basically um, solving a puzzle with my body and <laughs> which is a weird way to, to put it, but, um, I really like it. It's like a much more slow going type of, um, sport. I don't really like endurance or, uh, cardio sports in general. So, um, something that like puts my, take my mind off things and keeps me focused like that, uh, is really fun. Something that's more like an activity. So I really like rock climbing and I'm excited to do it more frequently, especially now that it's summer and I can't go to my hot yoga classes as much anymore. <laughs> I am so scared to do rock climbing. Like I'm a bigger guy. J Jacob, have you ever done rock climbing? Uh, no. My my goal, Peter, is to be able to do one pull up by end of this year. I'm in no shape to do, <laughs> do rock climbing. Well, the great thing about rock climbing is that it isn't just about your arm strength because it's as much about your foot work as well that's like the whole puzzle component um you oh, have my, my footwork is probably bad as well <laughs> <laughs> well especially someone with like me who doesn't have a lot of upper body strength um it's really interesting uh and uh it, it is a little bit scary at first i do something called bouldering which is uh the shorter walls but you go without a rope but the floors um are much softer and you have like these giant pads that you fall back on and you wait like, so you're sort of... you're free soloing this no well? <laughs> not free soloing <laughs> specifically because it's not as tall as a cliff for example but um they they show you the right the right way to fall so that you don't like injure yourself too much i mean sometimes you do get scrapes and there isn't a guarantee of not injuring yourself but it's i can't say it's the most safe sport but it's something that um i think that anyone could get into if they would like to try it's really fun i i encourage you to try it out um and it's a yeah it's a good way to just kind of test your your uh, own physical uh prowess as well as like the mind the on mind. a scale of one to ten how hard would it be for a size 17 boot to not fall to my death <laughs> um I, I mean, that, that would at least be double what HT's shoe size is, right? Yeah, I wonder if they have even those shoe sizes for rent. <laughs> Wait, so, so the most adventurous person on this podcast is probably Ben, right? Like, he's doing all the time, he's doing these hikes and stuff. But I've never heard of you trying rock climbing. Do you, have you ever done rock climbing? I tried it once in junior high, I think. There was, like, a rock climbing gym that was in my hometown, but I haven't tried it since then. I enjoyed it at the time, but I am not great in terms of upper body strength. So, um, yeah, I just – I never uh, found another place in, in L.A. I haven't heard of a place like that around here. Maybe there is one, but if anybody knows, write in and let me know. You should yeah. try it, Ben, because, like I said, it doesn't require a lot of upper body strength. I'm not strong at all. Yeah. I could totally see you and Amy – posting drone footage of you climbing a, a <laughs> side of a mountain. Oh, my God. I mean, that does sound pretty awesome. Yeah. Recreate the opening of Mission Impossible 2. Just... <gasps> Do it, Ben. <laughs> oh, but by the way, really really quickly, I forgot to mention this. Uh, after the Lonely Island concert, this is the first time it's ever happened to me, far, like not at like a movie-related event. And Peter is used to this all the time because obviously he's the founder of the site and his face is all, all over uh, and everything like that. But after the Lonely Island concert, a Slash Film Daily listener uh, recognized me like outside of the venue. 
uh, which is the first time that's ever happened. Uh, so shout out to Anthony for saying hi after the concert. That's awesome. That is really cool. Oh, I, I should also – that reminds me. When I was at Disneyland on Saturday, Kitra and I, with our new YouTube channel, Ordinary Adventures, we had a video go viral recently about Galaxy's Edge. It's gotten almost 200,000 views at this point. And while we were at the park, no less than 10 people stopped us um, and said that they saw our video, some of the, some cast members. And uh, not one of these people seemed like they have ever read Slash Film. So it was it was crazy to be stopped at the park by all these people who had watched, you know, the our videos and didn't know me from the site. Um, although I will say that every single one of them came up to us and were like, you're those YouTubers, right? So it's not, <laughs> not like they knew our names or knew what the name of the channel was. But it was very cool that uh, people were watching. And Kitra was like, she's so used to like being out with me and people stopping me. And it was cool that people were stopping her. So uh, she was just having a blast. Anyways. But Peter, I have heard that you have help from someone at YouTube to make you go viral. So we can't take this at face value. Yeah. Yeah. So Someone made that comment. I'm like, I, I wish I had help. But no. Um, just hard work. Okay. Uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. Chris, you're the only one who has been reading this week. Oh, but by the way, I got to shame Jacob here. What happened to the book a week? Jacob. Oh, yeah. Totally messed it up. Um, it, it reached a point where it's either going to be reading time or exercise time, and I've decided to dedicate my extra time to exercise. I will get back in the book train eventually. I'm still reading lots of articles, keeping up with news, you know, long-form journalism as much as I can, but uh, my book stuff has uh, fallen off considerably. However, I will say this much. A few months ago, I made a large list of things I want to do with my year to make this the best year of my life. Uh, including getting in shape, um, getting a tattoo, uh, other things that have and have not been checked off. Um, one of the things added to the list is that I'm going to read a book that I've been working up the nerve to read for years now. So hopefully I'll have a, I'll have a uh, book report uh, in the coming months on a book I think intimidates a lot of people. So look what, for that. What about making exercise time book time? You could read while you're on like the treadmill. Oh, I, I watch YouTube videos while I'm on the treadmill. It's the best way to lose yourself. I watch um, travelogues and um, videos that you can kind of three-quarters watch because I've noticed that trying to concentrate while exercising causes <laughs> my exercise to um, suffer. So uh, I, I find like uh, videos of people going places and doing things uh, like Ordinary Adventures, Peter. is something I, I, I watch while I exercise because I, oh, thank you. I, I find it very easy to get lost it, when people are taking you places on YouTube. And I, 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 I save uh, music and podcasts for, for weights. But once again, it can't be anything I have to focus too hard on because if, if I do that, either the reading suffers or the exercise suffers. So I, I made my choice, and it's one that, that I'm a little embarrassed about, but you know what? Um, I'm going to stick to it. I'm sorry for uh, publicly shaming you here, Jacob. Oh, no, I deserve it. Fuck me. <laughs> I, used to, uh, I used to watch Walking Dead when I went to the gym and exercised, and I found that was – it's what you're saying. Like, it's something you can half watch. But if I tried to watch it at home, I would get distracted because I wouldn't be as interested. But there on the treadmill, it's the only thing to watch. Yeah. But I've stopped watching it because I've stopped going to the gym. So, okay. Because well, that show hasn't been good since season three. Yeah, that as well. Chris, what have you been reading? 
Uh, I read the library book by Susan Orlean. She, um, she's the author of the orchid thief, which was the inspiration for adaptation. Uh, the, you know, the Charlie Kaufman, Spike Jones movie. Uh, and this book is about, um, in 1986, the Los Angeles public library caught fire and it was this huge fire and it destroyed, uh, hundreds and hundreds of books. And it was this huge deal. And, um, they don't really know how it got started and they, they think it was arson and this one guy got accused of it because he was kind of like a pathological liar and he would go around making up stories about how he was there that day, even though he probably wasn't. And his story kept changing. And sometimes he said he started the fire himself. Sometimes he said he was just there when the fire broke out. And so all these stories basically got him arrested for the crime, but there was almost no evidence against him. And uh, this book, it's it's about both that fire and the history of the Los Angeles Public Library, and it's also just about libraries in general, and it was a charming book. It made me, you know, I haven't actually been to a library in a while, I'm ashamed to admit, and it, it made me want to, like, go back to, you know, my local library and just, you know, check things out. It was just nice, uh, you know, even though it's about this, this awful event with the fire, <laughs> there's also, like, this, you know, this warmth in the book about, you know, just about the library system and how essential libraries are and how great librarians are and how important they are to, you know, America in general. And, uh, it was just a really charming book. I, I blew through it over the weekend. It, it was a really easy read. And, um, so it's, it's both informative and interesting. Okay. Let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, you know, I shamed Jacob. I'll shame myself right now. I, last year, I think I saw the least amount of films I've seen in a year in the last 15 years like it was really it just had gone downhill maybe my interest had been pulled elsewhere to tv to magic to theme parks whatever um i looked at my letterbox because we're all putting together our top uh 10 movies of the year thus far the first half of this year and i think i've seen only 20 movies in the first half of of something like that uh which is even less than i've seen last year i'm just hoping i mean i also i also missed sundance this year but i'm hoping that it'll pick up in the next half because i'm like looking at you know the theater listings and i'm looking at what's being released on vod and there's not a lot like that i'm really super getting excited about it's not like i don't have the time and there's stuff i'm Jacob, do you have a cure for me? Like, what is it? Because I feel like the the only film that's in theaters right now that uh, I should see is Midsommar. But I, I, other than that, like, I'm not really excited about movies right now. I, I get that feeling, Peter. And it's something I've had in the past before. I mean, I'd say, goodness, uh, about six or seven years ago, I was in a similar place where I was feeling really down about movies like i was not excited about movies anymore and part of that is the fact that our jobs day in day out five days a week nine to five or whatever hours we keep is movies and that's why we gravitate toward our hobbies our hobbies sometimes can't be movies like i play board games you do magic and everybody has a separate thing and there was a time period where i started my, find myself falling out of love with movies and it was a good six month period where i was going through the motions my writing wasn't as good my ideas weren't as sharp i was less excited movies could wait until the second weekend and honestly, for me, the big recharge point has been every year uh, at Fantastic Fest, I find myself feeling uh, recharged and revitalized and excited about movies again going into the next year. And that's why I can't miss a film festival, because um, having that 
place to remind me that how exciting movies can be and how thrilling they can be and how special they can be really recenters me. And that's why it's an annual stop for me because it reminds me of why I do this. I think you missing Sundance this year yeah. maybe is what's hurting you here. Chris, I know you see hundreds of movies each year. Like, do you ever get in this, this funk? Oh, yeah. I'm actually sort of there now. I feel like... <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I went to the movies recently to you know talk about what we'll be talking about next, and every trailer was just like, ugh, like I was just like miserable watching every trailer. I was like, I don't want to see any of these. Like, I've seen that Stuber trailer at least thirty times. I swear to God, if I see the trailer for Stuber one more time, I'm going to rip my own head off and throw it at the movie screen. Like, I don't, I have no interest in Stuber. Like, I just, I don't care. Please stop making movies like this. Like the only movie I'm legitimately excited about at this point is probably, um, well, Once Knives Out. That. Yes, Knives Out. Now that we see the trailer, and also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is out this month, I'm very excited about that. But other than that, I'm kind of like just biding my time until like TIFF, when I know you know good things will be playing there. I feel like we need to do a second half of uh, 2019 like anticipated episode because I need to get excited for things. But I, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's do a writer's room next week, Peter. Yeah. OK. Uh, anyways, this week I went and saw Spider-Man Far From Home. I got to go to the world premiere uh, at the Chinese theater, although for the first time th- th- uh, I know many people probably are never going to be lucky enough to go to a world premiere. Our, our job uh, facilitates that happening uh, more than average person. Um, the strange thing happened with this premiere is. They the premiere was taking place at the Ch- Man Chinese Theater. It's called TCL Chinese Theater, and uh, they also rented out. There's actually six theaters inside, like uh, it's like a multiplex behind the Chinese Theater, and uh, all the celebrities and stuff were inside the big theater. And I, for the first time ever, I got sent to like one of those small theaters. So I was I was at a movie premiere, but I was just like watching a movie in a multiplex, dressed up with a bunch of other random people. And it didn't feel much like a premiere, but afterwards it was a great party. Anyways, uh, it, it was just weird. It, it was strange to be at a premiere, but not feeling like you're actually at the premiere. Yeah. Same thing happened to me with sausage party a few years ago. I got all dressed up and it was just like, I almost got, I think we got dumped in with like a radio crowd or something, you know, like people off the street is what it felt like. <laughs> like we were, we had like, I mean, I, I don't remember if I was wearing a full suit, but there were people in there who were just in like shorts and t-shirts. Like they clearly were not supposed to be in there. I don't know what was going on. Yeah. I love how you said that was just a day we got dumped in with a radio crowd. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's the lower class. Ah, Brad, the reason I say that is because the one actually this has happened several times, but the most egregious example of of uh, movie screening that I've been to where somebody has like brought things in that they weren't supposed to bring in was one of those radio screenings where they like let people in off the street who call into a radio station or whatever. Oh, oh, you mean radio contest winners? I thought you were talking about like radio press people. (laughs) No, 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 no. Radio contest winners. Ben just hates all the radio press people. (laughs) No, but this guy brought in a full two liter and like a full like family size bag of chips or something in like a plastic bag and was just like guzzling it down during the movie. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? I know, I know exactly what you're talking about because 90% of my screenings here in, in my shitty market are radio crowd screenings. And one time I went to one and this guy brought an entire pizza in, like an entire box of pizza. And it was just like this stinky pizza. And it was just like, ah, get out of here. I hate it. I, I always I, tell like snobs, but it's a case where 
you know, I'm, I'm in Austin, which has a lot of great theaters, but what I learned is that it costs more for a studio to rent a, a for example, a draft house for a press or promo screening than to cost you to know, rent a local Regal or AMC. So most studios will just stick, you know, press screenings with a radio crowd, you know, at the crappy theater imaginable. So I skipped a lot of press screenings, but I'll say this much. A24 and Annapurna and the smaller places spend the extra cash to rent the draft house. Ish. Mwah. Thank you, Annapurna and A24. You, when the, when the guillotines come for us, we will die. But before then, we will watch movies in nice, quiet environments. Too bad Annapurna <laughs> can't spend that money on their marketing campaigns for their movies. Um, yeah, anyways. You know what? When I was in San Francisco, I used to go to a lot of those like all-media screenings uh, that were mainly filled with crowds from... Uh, the radio contests and stuff like it was the most annoying thing ever because those like radio like the like the like the street teams for the radio would be like at the front of the theater like giving out t-shirts and have like some kind of like you know like a uh, karaoke set up and it's just like I just want to watch the movie <laughs> but uh you know being subjected to that before the film anyways I know we've gone on a complain fest here and I I also I hope Ben agrees with me here. We're not complaining about getting to go to a premiere and getting uh, put into this theater that's not the premiere. It's just weird. It's a weird experience. I think we're all lucky to ever be invited to a premiere. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, okay, so uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh, you know, we're going to do a spoiler discussion tomorrow, so I don't want to go far uh, too far into it. Uh, but I did enjoy it. I did. Do you think Homecoming is better because it is a bit more grounded and more um, down to earth? And this feels like it ramps up a, a lot. <laughs> like, you know, these elemental monsters. And there's some really weird choices. I, I really want to discuss this with you guys tomorrow on the podcast. So we'll, we'll do that then. HG, I know you've already talked about this film uh, when we did the early or when you did your review segment on here, is there anything you want to say before we go to the spoiler segment tomorrow? No, I mean, um, I agree with you completely, Peter. It's a fun romp of a film uh, that ramps up the stakes and yet is focused on a more intimate personal arc, which I which I thought was kind of strange. Um, but I really did enjoy the movie. Uh, and this is the first time in which I find myself agreeing with Ben, who I remember was uh, lukewarm to warm on this film while everyone else was just raving about it. And um, I agree with a lot of the points that Ben said. It's very rare because Ben and I don't agree on movies a lot. So <laughs> I just wanted to give a shout out to that. I would say I'm more warm, but I'm definitely not hot. Like a lot of people were coming out of the screening being like it's better than homecoming and i'm like no no, <laughs> no yeah I'm a, I'm a little more warm but it's not as good as homecoming yeah okay let's move on to annabelle comes home i have not seen the annabelle series so i've avoided this but i heard it's good jacob what did you think yeah animal comes home is good uh i think that it's maybe not quite as good as annabelle creation which is a more cohesive coherent movie but uh gary dauberman who write who wrote and directed this he has been the one of the forces behind the scenes, along with James Wan, on most of the Conjuring universe. He's written a lot of the screenplays, but he's making his directorial debut here. And it's a strong case for him making more movies in the Conjuring universe. Uh, he knows how to amp up the tension. He knows how to set up those scares. And most importantly, this is what's missing from the, the, the lesser Conjuring spinoffs, is that the government understands that these movies are sentimental at heart. What makes the core Conjuring films so special is that, yeah, they're ghosts and demons and jump scares, but ultimately they're really sweet movies with a 
with the Warrens, played by uh, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga at the center, being this really warm, down-to-earth, um, totally in love with each other married couple who are solving you know, ghost crimes. And even though they're only supporting characters in this one, it's about Annabelle the Cursed Doll wreaking havoc on their young daughter while, while they're out of town. Uh, it's It maintains that sense of, you know, of sentimentality and sweetness and the beginning and end of this movie really lean hard on that in a way that makes it that Gary Dauberman should be directing Conjuring 3, not Michael Chavez, whose Curse of El Llorona was a bad movie and the worst movie in the Conjuring franchise. Anyway, before I toss this over to Chris, who I know liked this, I think I liked it a little bit more than he did. This movie ultimately becomes a series of audition reels for other future Conjuring monsters, more or less, because Annabelle, the evil doll, uh, starts unlocking all the other demonic spirits that are trapped in the Warren's artifact room where they keep all the uh, items and cursed objects from their cases. So it essentially becomes like characters wander from room to room and encounter, oh, this room has this monster, this room has that monster, this room has this monster, and some monsters work and some don't. So Chris, if Annabelle Comes Home is the American Idol of the Conjuring movies, where all these monsters are, sh- are coming up, showing off their pipes and auditioning for us, saying, which one of us serves a spinoff movie? Why is it the Ferryman? I don't know. I just, I thought that was the coolest one. I just like that. He seems like this, it's this like demonic serial killer. It kind of sounds like he like just uh, takes people to the, to the underworld. And he, you know, he's got those creepy coins for eyes. I just, I just really like that character. Uh, I, I would watch, I would happily watch an entire spinoff about the ferryman, but really all the, all the things they set up in here are kind of fun. Um, I didn't really like the, there's like a werewolf, which I really didn't like, but I, I loved like the the dress, like the, the the haunted bride dress. The there's a haunted board game. There's a haunted TV. The all TV that's... is so good. I love the haunted yeah, TV. Yeah, I would watch. I would watch movies about pretty much all of these things. Honestly, Wait, um, I, I have a question for you guys because I heard the original Annabelle was just so bad, so I I didn't step my, you know, I loved Conjuring, and now you guys have sold me on this film and the film that precedes it but like do i need to see the first one no unfortunately yeah you do because annabelle creation ties directly into annabelle and so does this one in ways that (laughs) all you need to know is it's a creepy doll and it summons other creepy things i don't think you need to watch the first the first annabelle is one of the worst (laughs) movies ever made it's so bad just avoid it just avoid that movie at all costs annabelle creation is fine this is fine. Don't watch the first Annabelle. Jacob, could he get by just reading the Wikipedia page for the first movie? Yeah, honestly, I think it's probably the best bet because the, the ending of Annabelle Creation ties pretty cleanly into the first Annabelle since it's a prequel to a prequel. <laughs> uh, but Annabelle Comes Home is very much a direct sequel to both Annabelle and the first Conjuring. So if you read the Wikipedia page for Annabelle and remember the Conjuring, you're good to go here. Wait, has, also, has anybody actually done that? Read a Wikipedia page to go into a sequel? I feel like I feel like I'm so against that. I'm pretty sure I've done it at least once for something. I think it was like I haven't seen all the Fast and the Furious movies, and I had to go see the the one where Paul Walker was badly CGI'd into the movie, like a ghost and. Uh, I I like I read the Wikipedia for like half of them because I was like I'm not watching all these goddamn movies because they're not that good. I'm sorry, Ben. They're not that good. Chris, <laughs> no. But what is good is Emma comes home. It's it's not great, but uh, Chris, I think you'd agree with me when I say it's the movie equivalent of like a Halloween month haunted house. I mean, it has the same aspirations and it gets the job done, right? Right. Yeah, I said that in my review. It's like a it's like a carnival haunted house where it's literally. 
people going from room to room and things jump out at them. And I also this in my review, this movie is about absolutely nothing. There's nothing to this movie. And normally that would make me hate the film, but this film is so... Um, Okay, you've Enter- unsold me on this movie. <laughs> no, look, Peter, what do you need this movie to be about? It's about a creepy doll. That's it. You don't. What do you need, like a, a deep moral in this movie? Forget it. All you need to know is it's about creepy stuff, and that that works for me. Um, you know, I, I'll agree that sometimes I'll see a movie, and if it's about nothing, I'll be like, boy, that was a waste of time. But this, it does its job. You'll 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 have your your thrills and chills. You'll walk out of the theater. You'll forget all about it until the next one comes out. Look, I don't want at the risk of a mild plot spoiler. So hit the fifteen skip second bu- skip button on your phone for the next you know thirty seconds or so, if this really bothers you. But uh, the, end, the movie during during one of the final scenes, uh, Vera Farmiga's uh, Lorraine Warren goes to one of the char- teenage characters from the movie, and and the character's like, "Man, I can't believe we unleashed a bunch of demonic forces." And Vera uh, Farmiga says, "It's okay. As teenage girls, we all make mistakes." And I start going, "Yep, that's the Conjuring. That's that's Lorraine <laughs> Warren being a comforting mom figure uh, in the middle of all this madness." And that's why I love the Conjuring movies, and that's why I love this movie too. <laughs> the, the Warrens are supposed to be like somewhat the heroes of this franchise. This yeah, right? But like yeah, but they just keep all the stuff in a locked room in their basement. Shouldn't like there be like a maximum security like warehouse where they they hold all this stuff? No one believes them. It's actually a plot point in the movie that people think they're cranks and that nobody wants to be friends with their daughter uh, because they think because they all think she's like a crazy, you know, dead girl. Uh, so uh, I guess it's a case where they they are the only people they trust to keep it safe until meddling teenagers break into the room and then the action can start. <laughs> okay, uh, Chris, you were not interested in Toy Story four at all, but all of us said that it was a really good movie, and, and that convinced you to see it. Uh, I had to see it because I had to write something about the film. So I gave in and saw it. Uh, it's fine. It's, <laughs> it's it's an okay movie. I don't know what everyone is. Much how you are reacting to the reaction to Spider-Man Comes Home is, or Spider-Man Far From Home is is my reaction to this, where I, I liked it, but I, I feel like there's no reason for this movie to exist. I, and I would have been perfectly fine with it ending with three that said i did love forky of course who doesn't love forky who you know like all of us did not ask to be born but has to has to endure this horrible world uh i I related to that character i love duke kaboom you know i I like the movie it's a it's an entertaining movie it has sweet moments in it it has funny moments in it but i i just you know when it was over i was sort of just like is that it i what what am i missing here why is everyone going uh you know crazy for this sequel but so you're you're, you're just waiting for like the hobbs and shaw style forky and duke kaboom spinoff movie right oh my god that would be incredible (laughs) please pixar if you're listening make that movie i will watch the hell out of it (laughs) okay uh ben what have you been watching this week I caught up with a movie from 1940 called Haunted Honeymoon, which had a really fun premise, and it was on um, Turner Classic Movies. I DVR'd it, so that's how I watched it, and uh, I'll read you the plot synopsis from Wikipedia. It says, uh, the movie is about a newly married famous uh, famous amateur detective 
and his wife, who is a mystery writer, and they are looking forward to their quiet honeymoon at their new country cottage when they are reluctantly drawn into the investigation of a local murder. So they, it's this guy who his job is to solve solve crimes, and his wife is a mystery writer who all day just thinks about crime and, and ways to incorporate that into her work, and they decide to give up their respective careers the guy is like, I'll go into farming or, you know, some something that has nothing to do with uh, the life that we led before. And and the wife decides to give up her writing career as well because they've just had they've had it with crime. They don't want any more of it. And of course, the guy that they you know, they move far away to the country. They move out of London to this this basically like very, very small English town. And, uh, th- of course, the guy that they're buying this house from ends up murdered. So they have to use their skills to figure out what the hell is going on uh, with this little situation. So it's, it's a nice little movie. It's it's sort of in the vein of, like, um, The Thin Man and, and films like that, where it's, like, detective partners who are also um, in relationships who very clearly, are, you know, have, like, a loving relationship with each other. And it's just fun to watch them. Uh, bounce off of each other. Uh, the film stars Robert Montgomery and Constance Cummings. I thought both of them were really good. I hadn't really seen them in anything before. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just like a nice, fun little movie. I think it's, uh, it's like 100 minutes long. It's just sort of like an in and out, nice little British mystery film. So that's called The Haunted Honeymoon, if you want to check that out. And then I watched The Postman Always Rings Twice. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but it's a 1946 noir movie. I think it's the third version of this story uh it's based on a james m kane novel he's very famous in the world of film noir and this is like one of the the most famous film noir movies i've seen a lot of noir films in my day but uh this is one of the ones that was sort of like on the top of a lot of lists or or near the top of a lot of lists that i just never gotten around to to checking out for myself and uh i have no love for this movie i i was sort of hoping that i would be in love with it um but I'm not a big fan. It, it's about uh, John Garfield plays this guy who is like a a wanderer. He's a, a drifter who is, basically takes a job as a handyman at this um, place right right outside of L.A. That's like a uh, it's like a roadside diner kind of place. And Lana Turner plays the woman who lives there and she's married to the owner and uh, John Garfield and Lana Turner's characters get into this illicit relationship and they plot the death of the the husband and it's very um you know if you've seen a few film films noir (laughs) you've probably come across these sort of tropes before um for me i just i love double indemnity which came out a couple years earlier than this i think that is one that i could the dialogue is more crackling the acting the performances are better across the board i would just recommend that people if you're interested in noir and and uh stories like that i would recommend watching double indemnity instead of the postman always drinks twice but i know that they've made that movie a couple different times and maybe one of the other versions is better but this is the one that was sort of like right there you know in in the in the heart of the film noir world 1946 that's like you know peak that period so uh i wanted to check it out and that one is actually streaming um actually it's available to rent or buy right now on amazon if you want to check that out for yourselves has anybody ever seen that movie Anybody here? Not since high school, actually. It was one of those movies where I went on a classic movie binge uh, when I first got Netflix in high school. And, you know, that was like Citizen Kane and 12 Angry Men and this one. And I think it says something that I remember those other two vividly and still rewatch them this day, but I have not revisited this one. 
Yeah, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it, too. Um, all right, so then I rewatched Collateral because this movie was on or is on uh, HBO Go right now. It was just on HBO one night. Uh, my wife and I just happened to be flipping channels, and we missed, like, the first one minute of it, and we're just immediately locked in. It's been – it's one of our favorite movies. It's a movie I've been wanting to rewatch for a long time, but it, the fact that it was just on HBO when we were scrolling through gave us the perfect opportunity to rewatch it. And, guys, this movie is just so damn good. I think it's – I mean, I know that Heat is like the big Michael Mann film and it's legendary for its own reasons. And I think those reasons are largely warranted. But I I feel like Collateral is easily his second best film. Um, It's it might be my favorite Tom Cruise movie just because it feels like the type of movie that I wish Tom Cruise was making all the time. But the kind that he so rarely makes, which is he plays on his movie star persona in interesting ways and works with directors and, and um, storytellers that he doesn't normally work with. And I mean, I love the mission impossible films that he's made, especially in, you know, with Chris McQuarrie, the last couple, but Cruz is one of those guys like the rock and, and several other main huge A-list actors that like, once they find a few people that they like to work with, they just work with them over and over and over again. And it kind of, the results kind of get a little boring after a while. And Collateral was a huge departure for Tom Cruise because it's one of the few times that he's played an out-and-out villain. And he is so good in this movie. And and Jamie Foxx is so good as the cab driver who is basically, like, forced into driving him around town as he commits these murders over the course of a night. Jada Pinkett Smith is amazing in this movie. Mark Ruffalo shows up with this insane facial hair and in a small role that you sort of forget that he's in this movie. But, uh, man, it just packs a punch in every possible way. I love the... Um, it's like one of my favorite L.A. movies. Uh, my wife and I were sitting on the couch, like trying to track how they were traveling across the city and whether or not the the routes make sense. And if you could actually get from this point to this point in the time that the characters are claiming that they did in the movie and stuff like that. So it's a lot of fun if you know the town, if you know the city to to watch it, you know, through that lens as well. I, but, I do um, that with almost every L.A. movie or TV show. And spoiler alert, usually it doesn't make sense. Yeah, most of the time. Yes, exactly. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to man the collateral. It's on HBO right now and um god this movie just it rules so hard does anybody else here love this film as much as i do oh yeah yeah it's great (laughs) yes i love it and also i want to say i think it's one of the few movies that i think captures like downtown la in a way that it actually looks like downtown la like that and maybe maybe a little bit of drive drive doesn't really take place in downtown la right uh, I mean, it, yeah, there, there are some parts where yeah. it sort of cruises through there. So you see it in a way that you don't often see it uh, in films that are supposed to be set in this town. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the last thing that I watched, I wanted to give a very quick shout out to one episode of Documentary Now season three. So the third season of this show, which I think is an IFC original, is available on Netflix right now. And I watch the show in a very scattershot way. I think it's the only show that I watch it this way where I just sort of like click around and and sort of watch stuff as it uh you know as it appeals to me on an individual basis instead of going through in order that's because the show is a sort of a parody show from like seth meyers and um and bill Hader and fred armison where it's like each episode is a a riff on an existing documentary so uh, most of the time i will only watch the episodes of this show that are based on documentaries that i've actually seen because the jokes so many of the jokes are based in like formalism like the you know the 
uh, mimicking the exact styles and some of the, you know, editing and, and cinematography and framing and all that stuff that, that appear in the actual documentary. So if you haven't seen the docs that they're sort of uh, making fun of or, or paying homage to, then you sort of lose half of the humor. Um, so that being said, I watched one based on original cast album Company, which I'd never seen before. <laughs> but uh, John Mulaney was in this. Taron Killam was in this episode. Paula Pell, Richard Kind was in it as well. So I just was like, all right, the the strength of the cast of this particular episode, uh, you know, outweighed the fact that I'd never seen the documentary on which it's based. And the episode is called uh, Original Cast Album Co-op. And it's about uh, a 1970 Broadway musical called Co-op, where the cast of of this musical get called in to perform the album in a record booth, in a recording studio, basically. And they realize that their, uh, their Broadway show has been canceled, but they decide to record the whole thing anyway. And I just wanted to give a shout out to this because the writing in this thing is unbelievable. It's like, I mean, I think it's like a 30 minute, episode of tv but there's so much work that went into this because they have they record several songs of of a musical that does not actually exist and it really feels like a, a real musical and and it's bad in all of the the perfect ways i don't know has anybody else caught up with this season of documentary now does anybody else seen this episode brad this seems like something you would have watched yeah, so I actually, this is one of the episodes they screened at Sundance when they had a Documentary Now uh, event there, and I went out of my way to go to it because I love Documentary Now, and this uh, this episode blew me away because the, the you're absolutely right, the writing is incredible because the songs feel like they could be legitimate Broadway songs, like the, musically, uh, the way they're performed, like ly- lyrically, they are fantastic, and the energy that the cast puts into them is, is amazing richard kind especially in this episode oh my god he had me cracking up so much <laughs> and the coolest thing about it is they actually recorded full versions of all these songs because uh at, at the screening they actually gave out a, a vinyl pressing of the soundtrack for co-op oh wow uh, yeah so it's like I, I love this episode it's yeah it's so good if you haven't watched any documentary now just go watch this episode and it'll probably make you want to watch the rest of the show it's it's so good yeah and that's streaming on netflix right now very cool jacob uh besides annabelle what else have you been watching this week i watched a film called jerusalem jerusalem with a z uh because i thought it would be something terrible i could watch a half hour of and go to sleep turns out uh jerusalem is actually not terrible and is actually kind of good <laughs> and it has a lot going for it and that it is a uh Israeli horror film shot in Jerusalem. It's a found footage movie about the biblical apocalypse happening. Well, a a group of American uh, college students are in Jerusalem and they capture it all on Google Glass. (laughs) The idea of the found footage aspect of the film. And it's very low budget. The digital effects are clearly um, above what they have in the bank. But there is a certain strange energy to this film. It has Cloverfield-esque ambitions on a paranormal activity budget. And Enough of it works for me to give it a mild recommendation. It is streaming on Amazon, and I, I find it the, the, the use of the, of the locations in Jerusalem is kind of stunning. You know, clearly filming on a tiny budget, but just seeing any kind of horror film, a found footage horror film set in a city that we never see this kind of movie set in, ends up giving it this entire uh, atmosphere that I ended up really appreciating. It made up for a lot of the you know stuff that doesn't quite work. And the, also, I find amusing that all the leads are played by Israeli actors, 
including the uh, ones playing American college students. And one guy, uh, poor guys, cannot pull off American accent to save his life. His Israeli accent is coming through all the time. And I just wish you would let him play an Israeli character after a point. But um, yeah, and I found out the directors, uh, the uh, Paz brothers, made a film called The Golem, I think earlier this year or last year, that was sort of a festival darling. It apparently is, uh, was critically acclaimed and well-liked. So apparently it went from being, you know, low-budget, found footage schlock to making, you know, something more akin to The Witch for their follow-up. So I'll be seeking that out now. That is uh, Jerusalem. Yeah, so I know that the uh, Z in the title implies this is a zombie movie and clearly is trying to grab World War Z eyes. Uh, but it's a biblical apocalypse movie uh, shot through Google Glass <laughs> uh, in actually in Jerusalem. So it's an interesting experiment. Your your mileage may vary depending on your stomach for low-budget horror. But uh, I liked it more than I thought I would. I finished it to the end. Chris, have you seen Jerusalem? I need to know this. I have not. I am aware of it. I've seen the poster, of, <laughs> but I, I've just never seen it. I think it's just the title immediately turned me off with that Z in the middle. It's like a big Z. It looks like an energy drink. I, I didn't bother with it, but maybe I will now that you've recommended it. And I think that Golem movie is streaming now, too. I think I saw it somewhere streaming. Is you say it's shot with Google glasses. Is that the the premise or is it actually been shot like because I feel like the Google glass camera is not very good. Yeah, I don't think it's not actually shot Google glass, okay. uh, but it's but it's meant to be seen as if the character's wearing you know a, a smart device on, on, her, on her head. So like, you know, she gets like text messages and like watches news reports and like expedition is carried on through the Google glass. They actually for a, a for a device that nobody talks about anymore and doesn't, you know, Nobody that fell off the cliff pretty quickly. The movie actually uses Google Glass in some pretty inventive, fun ways. Yeah, I mean, when we get real, true, augmented reality, I think there's some interesting things that could be done there in cinematically as well. Um, okay, Brad, I know you are the only one on staff who actually went to the theater to see the Avengers Endgame re-release. I was excited to see it, and then I heard what the extras were, and it didn't. It made me decide not to go out to the, the theater. Was it worth it? Uh, yes, I went because I'm a dedicated journalist and I needed to get the story for myself. Um, it's honestly, I I don't think that the price of admission for the movie ticket uh, is justified by the new footage that is added. It's nothing that is uh, amazing or like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I got to see that. It, it was mostly I, I went because I really just wanted to see Avengers Endgame one more time, and it was a little bit more convenient because. It came back and it had this extra stuff. Um, the Stanley tribute that is included was very nice. Uh, it's comprised of a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes footage of Stanley talking to like documentary crews and uh, chatting with like the stars and the directors and shooting the various cameos that he did. Which uh, and one of the more interesting things about it is actually there's footage of uh, a cameo that they didn't end up using in uh, 2012's Avengers. Uh, there's a there's a lot of B-roll footage of Stan Lee on an outdoor cafe set with Chris Evans as Steve Rogers, uh, and the only reason I could tell that it was two, uh, 2012 Avengers is because of he's wearing the same clothes he is in that final scene when uh, Loki and Thor uh, leave in the middle of New York to go back to Asgard, and so they must have decided that scene didn't work very well or it slowed the movie down or something like that, and they ended up putting Stan Stan Lee in that newsreel footage uh, instead, which worked out pretty well. Uh, but it was a very, very nice tribute to Stan Lee. You can, you can just tell the way he talks, um, you know, about doing these cameos and these characters and stuff. that he, he always loved what he did, and he was always willing to talk to anybody who wanted to talk about it. 
and then they showed the deleted scene with uh, Hulk, which was a completely different introduction for the character. It was unfinished, so the effects are, are not done. They're very uh, low-grade effects. The uh, An animatic of Hulk that doesn't really move. It just kind of slides around the scene. The mouth doesn't even move for talking. Um, and one thing that was funny, but then also kind of takes you out of the scene, is they had Reginald Vell Johnson, uh, who's most famous for playing uh, the, the cop in Die Hard and also being a cop in Family Matters. Uh, was on the scene as as a cop in this scene, and it almost made it feel like a fake scene, like a parody scene, which was kind of weird. Uh, and then they they showed a sneak peek of Spider-Man: Far From Home, which is just the introduction of Mysterio, and that also wasn't anything particularly exciting, and especially because the two shots of Mysterio we had already seen in the trailers. They it, uh, they were just repurposing the trailer to make it seem like. He was showing up at, during a different part of the movie instead of how he actually shows up in the scene. So, personally, the best part for me was just seeing Avengers Endgame one more time. Uh, it was nice to see it in theaters again, and uh, it still it still works really well for me. You know, a three-hour movie on its fourth time uh, doesn't really lose any of its luster. It still pulls the heartstrings. It still has some great big movie moments that I just love, and yeah, it's uh, it's one of my favorites of the year. How how was the crowd at the theater for this re-release? Well, I went during uh, for a matinee on a Saturday. It was like four o'clock, and I think that there were maybe a total of like ten people there. But at the same time, you have to remember, like I live in a uh, a smaller town, and uh, even though that theater is in a town that's bigger than mine, um, it's not necessarily always extremely crowded. Even for you know when I go to sneak preview screens on Thursdays uh, for big movies, it's generally not a crowd where the theater is sold out or anything like that. Um, Marvel movies and things like that usually do pretty well for those screenings, but it's not often that the, the theater is completely overrun with a crowd or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, and they were hoping this would push Avengers Endgame over the edge to defeat uh, Avatar, and that didn't happen, right? Yeah, it only made, I think, $7.5 over the weekend. And uh, some box office people were saying that Marvel and Disney were never really trying to beat Avatar, even though a lot of the social media posts from the cast seem to indicate otherwise. Um, they That might, might have been the story that they were pushing, but a lot of box office people were saying that it was mostly just to take a little bit away from Annabelle creation and also help boost Spider-Man a little bit. But when you're only like, you know, 30 some million away, like that extra push really feels like that's that's really what they're probably trying to do. <laughs> I think in, a, in today's social media world where people can say what is being added, like I, I think when people heard what th- that what was added was not substantial at all, people just didn't show up. Like I feel like if they had added more to like the reunion section of that film or put in some deleted scenes like people might have like more people might have shown up do you, do you think maybe but this, but but again it's one of those things too where that information would have traveled just as fast and what are you going to put into that movie that's go- going to be you know nearly as important for people to feel like they need to see when the movie already has pretty much everything necessary you need to see in it you know like scenes scenes are deleted from movies for a reason for sure okay uh what else have you been watching uh, so this is a totally random thing, um, but when I was younger, a friend of mine had uh, the movie for richer or poorer, which is um, like a comedic approach to the movie Witness. It stars Tim Allen and Kirstie Alley. They're these like rich, high society um, kind of dickheads, and they end up getting caught up in like 
uh, an IRS uh, scheme, and so they run out of money, and they they getting they get chased by IRS agents, and while they're on the run, they end up uh, hiding out in this uh, Amish community, uh, and so the whole thing is just this idea of like obviously these people can't fit in in the Amish community, but they learn a lesson about themselves and they save their marriage and da 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 da. It's not a very good comedy, but. When I was younger, my friend had it on VHS, and we used to just do, you know watch it a fair amount because it was one of a bunch of different movies that he had that we would like to watch when we were goofing around. And recently, I noticed that it was on uh, Stars, and so I happened to put it on in the background. And uh, you know, again, still not a great movie, but I noticed uh, something very weird about it. And this movie uses several orchestral uh, tracks from other movies. Uh, it uses a couple tracks from the Back to the Future 3 soundtrack. It uses a track from Danny Elfman's Beetlejuice score. Uh, and there's there's a couple other ones that I, I had to go look it up because I recognized one of the tracks. I was like, wait a minute, that's that's not from this movie. And so I, just, I had to go check it out. And for whatever reason, I couldn't find out why or anything like that. I would imagine it's because maybe they didn't have enough money to finish the score or the original score wasn't finished in time or something like that. But they end up reusing these tr- these. Uh, soundtrack pieces from other movies to fill fill out the the score in this movie. Uh, so yeah, that was just a weird thing that I realized while rewatching this. Hmm, weird. Uh, I wonder how many movies do that. Or uh, there was probably something that was done a lot more back then, right? Maybe. I mean, but I don't know. Like I I used to watch a lot of movies, you know, like when I was a kid in the '90s, and I've seen still seen a lot of movies from the '90s as an adult, and. This was the first time where I ever really noticed, uh, you know, that it was uh, very egregiously done. Hmm. Okay, HD, what have you been watching this week? So this year is the 30th anniversary of Do the Right Thing, a movie I've never seen before. So I went to see uh, the 30th anniversary screening of this movie at the Alamo Draft House. And um, it's uh, been this movie has been hailed as Spike Lee's masterpiece. And for good reason, it is amazing and astonishingly, astonishingly prescient. Uh, the best word I can use to describe it is incendiary, which I say it's for this podcast. Um, <laughs> um, so this is a film that follows a uh, pizza delivery guy played by Spike Lee, who um, is... Uh, going through his day on the hottest day of the year in Brooklyn, New York. And um, he finds himself caught in the middle of these rising racial tensions between Salvatore Fragione, the Italian pizza owner of the pizzeria, and the uh, majority black community within um, this Brooklyn neighborhood and uh, his own friends as well. This um, is, yeah, again, a incredibly timely, incredibly prescient film, not just in its depiction of the racial tensions and the uh, depiction of police brutality, but also ri- of random ish- issues like uh, climate change, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but yeah, Spike Lee is a phenomenal filmmaker who I haven't seen enough of his films of, but Do the Right Thing, I think, is a great not intro, I have seen Black Klansman, but a really great sort of way of bringing you into that fold in which, in seeing how he has, he established himself as an auteur and how he um, just hammers you across the head with these issues, but in a way that puts it in your face, um, but doesn't, still doesn't um, uh, 
provide you the answers either. There's no real black and white with this movie. It's very, it's challenging and hard and um, beautiful to watch. It's, it's a really beautiful movie. And um, yeah, I'm happy I finally saw it for yeah. the first time. I feel like early Spike Lee is a lot better than later career Spike Lee. Am I the only one who think, thinks that? I think he's inconsistent all the way through. Uh, <laughs> like he'll he'll follow up his masterpieces with like duds, uh, but sometimes he'll make do the right thing, which is one of the best films of all time, or Black Klansman, which is one of the best films of last year. Uh, and when he hits, like I don't think you can deny that his hits are some of the best American films of all time. Yes. So what else have you watching, HD? I have also watched Midsummer. Uh, which I'll talk about more on our spoiler episode coming out later this week. Uh, but I loved it. It's this grotesque, perverse, and kind of cathartic trip of a movie that follows this slow breakdown of a toxic relationship um, and the kind of goes into the emotional labor that women go through in these um, kinds of relationships. Uh, kind of, and sort of through the lens of a folk horror fable. I absolutely love this. I thought it was great how funny it was. It's a straight-up comedy at points. And um, I will, yes, again, go further into it in our spoiler episode, which we have recorded and will go up later this week. Um, I have also seen, I had a sort of a Hideki Anno uh, marathon earlier, uh, late last week uh, in sort of celebration of Neon Genesis Evangelion, but I watched uh, Shin Godzilla, which is Hideki Anno's 2016 kaiju film um, that follow, that was set in Tokyo, Japan, uh, when Godzilla emerges from the Tokyo Bay and lays waste to the city. So this is a film that is excellent. And instead of delving into the destruction and the chaos typical of a monster movie, it goes into the bureaucratic drama of it all. And at points almost becomes a thinly veiled satire in the vein of an Armando Iannucci film. Uh, I, I was talking to Jake about this before and he compared it to Veep. Um, I would also to compare this to The Death of Stalin in the way that it straddles that line between satire and um, the real horrors that the, this monster lays on the, the people of Tokyo and uh, the... Um, the costs of the ineffectiveness of bureaucracy because mo most of this film is follows these bureaucrats who are trying to tackle this issue, but are prevented by yards and yards of red tape and they hold meetings to decide whether they should hold this meeting and to decide whether they should hold another meeting. And it's hilarious, but it's also a little bit heartbreaking. And I really love this film. I recommend this seeing this, even if you aren't a fan of kaiju films, I'm not, huge on kaiju or monster films in general but i really loved shin godzilla it's very it's almost blackly comic in a way and um other uh neon genesis and hideki eno uh related things i've seen <laughs> not really related but i watched uh, 10 years with miyazaki which is an nhk uh docuseries following um the 10 years with miyazaki uh leading up to his retirement in 2013 this is sort of Anno related because Miyazaki was a mentor for Anno. They worked on um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind together. And um, I was writing a column that was Neon Genesis Evangelion related. So I was like, I'm just going to add this Miyazaki docuseries in here because it's me and I love him. Um, but it's a really fascinating look into um, 
the, I've only seen the first episode, but it goes into the beginning process of him um, creating Ponyo. Uh, and uh, that was meant to be one of his last films, uh, which you never know, no, never happens. Uh, but he, his process is so interesting because as a filmmaker, he always storyboards first. And I found, was really fascinated by the fact that he felt that writing a screenplay uh, was a creative obstacle in a way. It, he felt that it stemmed his creative flow. And um, it also goes into his personal life a little as well. Uh, at, around this time that the documentary started, uh, Miyazaki's son, Goro Miyazaki, released his feature debut, which was Tales of Earthsea, uh, much to... Um, against the protests of uh, his father. And uh, you see at the screening of this film that Miyazaki is actually walks out halfway through and uh, is very disapproving of this. And it's pretty heartbreaking to see this really strained relationship between father and son. It kind of goes into the themes of Neon Genesis, actually. Um, <laughs> which, speaking of, I finished uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion and uh, my mental health is for the worse for it. Uh, it's, um, I spoke about this a little last week. This is such a phenomenal and breathtaking and kind of invasive series that felt almost like watching Hideki Anno's nervous breakdown in real time, especially the finale of the series, which is incredibly polarizing, but I absolutely loved because, uh, the finale is all very abstract it starts to play with the animated form and play with the typical narrative structure in a way that I didn't foresee going at all and basically became a, a glorified therapy session for Anno. He walks through the ideas of the self and deconstructs and reconstructs it and essentially uh, decides on um, self-acceptance and self-love in a way that was kind of uh, happy and, uh, and um, cathartic. And I, I enjoyed that ending a lot. Um, I did not enjoy the alternate ending that he created in the feature film, End of Evangelion, which I watched right after. Um, End of Evangelion is the alternate ending that Hideki Anno released after the, his series ending created so much backlash that he received death threats, um, you know, comments and everything. And he ended up putting a lot of those death threats in the, um, in actually in End of Evangelion. It shows up uh, at the end of this, of the film. And this is, this is a hard, a hard film to watch. Um, it is so much more bleak and abysmal. And it felt like Anno uh, taking the most destructive and um, nihilistic route and, and, an ending and throwing it in the fan's face and asking, is this what you wanted? It kind of comes to a similar conclusion at the end, but the journey leading up to that conclusion was just so um, demoralizing <laughs> that <laughs> uh, I, I really dislike this film, if you can tell. It's, um, it, it is, it's interesting because it does start off more action-packed, but the way, the way that it ends up leaving becomes increasingly abstract and then it takes you into this live action area it starts to um it shows you know tokyo in real at the time and like in that through a live action lens and actively points the camera at the audience literally the audience of 
uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion and um, shows them and condemns them. And it's fascinating and great, but also terrible. I guess movie's amazing, HT. Uh, <laughs> for all the reasons you may ha- you don't like it, I like guess it's incredible. Like as she said, it's literally a scene where the camera's looking at a group of live action people in a movie theater, and a voiceover is saying things along the lines of, "Is this what you want? Is this what you wanted?" That sounds <laughs> awesome to me. <laughs> because uh, I don't want to say too much about the about either these endings to spoil it, but very much if if if, if Evangelion's a series, ultimately is about an artist finding a reason to survive and not, and not kill himself. And the final original finale uh, does have a crazy abstract left turn, but ends with the idea of life having value and that, in that the artist, in Anno, uh, that finale is him saying out loud through a mech anime, I will not kill myself. I have value as a human being. And then when, when people literally send him death threats um, and vandalize the studios, he literally makes a feature-length response saying, "Oh yeah, you didn't you didn't want me to be happy? Well, here's my misery over 90 minutes. Live in it. Eat this." I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's really kind of impressive and amazing. I mean, it's also interesting that this isn't the only alternate ending that Ano has made over the years. He's currently in in the works of the fourth uh, rebuild film for Neon Genesis Evangelion, and it's supposed to be another different ending. He's also changed that the story through the process of those films as well and i've heard that the manga series also changes the ending and i i find it fascinating how amorphous this story is uh just in relation to how it how it connects so deeply to hideki Anno's experiences um but also i just i did not enjoy the experience of watching end of evangelion interesting this makes me want to watch all of it this, this the idea that this even exists um, but okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, the one thing I discovered this past week or maybe this past month was, uh, legendary foods. They make this, this almond butter. I have not tried all their almond butter, but they make a flavor that's called blueberry cinnamon, cinnamon bun. So it's, uh, it tastes like, uh, it tastes like peanut butter, but it tastes also like, has like little bits of blueberries in them and it has like a cinnamon bun flavor to it. And as you know, I'm on the keto diet. This this is a good snack that is low carb. I think it's like four net carbs per serving and it's a high in fat. So 14 grams of fat, but the healthy fat. Um, so I don't know. It's something I would recommend. Uh, it comes in a jar, but it's so much easier to overindulge when it's in a jar. Uh, they also come in like these packets, but my complaint about the packets is it's like, imagine trying to eat peanut butter out of like, a ketchup packet. I mean, it's bigger than a ketchup packet, but like it, it's not the best, um, you know, facilitator of eating like a nut butter out of like a packet. So uh, I don't know. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but I highly recommend it. I've been loving the legendary foods uh, nut butters, and I also I have some some nuts from them. They have like a pizza flavored nuts and some other flavored nuts that are really good and also good on keto. So. I'd say check those out if you haven't. Uh, Brad, what kind of interesting things have you been eating this week? First, let me say a pizza-flavored nut sounds disgusting. Uh, It's awesome. Having said that, I just tried a Cheeto sandwich from Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, yesterday, July 1st, uh, you might have seen this on social media and people questioning its existence because why the hell does this thing exist? But it is a uh, a Cheetos uh, chicken sandwich that you can get at KFC, 
Uh, they take a like a crispy chicken sandwich that you can normally get at KFC. Uh, they put Cheetos uh, on the sandwich along with this special, extremely frighteningly orange Cheetos sauce uh, and mayonnaise. And man, it. <laughs> it by, tastes... by the way, all of this sounds good except for that Cheeto sauce. Honestly, uh, the Cheeto sauce isn't bad, but it's but it's very weird because it tastes. Exactly like Cheetos dust when you when you lick it off of your fingers, but it's just it, 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 it's almost more potent. Like when you get a good uh, taste of it on your tongue, it almost tastes uh, dare I say dangerously cheesy. Um, <laughs> it is just, it's just kind of odd. It's it's ne- definitely not bad. I will say the weird thing is that uh, the Cheetos on the sandwich. And I don't know if it's because like it's it's they get warm in the sandwich and it makes them this way, but the Cheetos felt like they were. Um, a little crunchier, almost like harder to chew with the sandwich, um, and so I don't like I don't know if it's a product of just being warm with the sandwich or or what, but it, it wasn't bad. But it, it, uh, the Cheeto sauce is definitely uh, a little weird. And then uh, I ha- I got the they have like a special combo. It's like it's called like the Cheetos box at KFC, and so it also came with some uh, popcorn chicken nuggets that, that they put the Cheeto sauce on, and that's where I really got like the taste of that. Uh, Cheeto sauce and how uh, just kind of odd it is. So it's um it's definitely just full on junk fast food uh, sandwich, but it's you know it, it's an interesting thing to try, I guess. Okay. Uh, did you eat any <clears throat> other strange things this week? You know I did, Peter. Um, so AMC Theaters has a new kind of popcorn right now, inspired by uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home. It is. A red and blue popcorn that is, uh, it's kind of like uh, kettle corn, except the coating on it is more of like a like a candy coating. Um, it it almost tastes similar to like what the the coating on like uh, M and M's would be or something like that, but just like sprayed onto uh, the popcorn. And it, it's actually really good when the popcorn has been in. Uh, the popcorn heater, where they keep the so that they keep it warm uh, when you go and get it after when it's not in the popper uh, anymore, where it's cooked, and it's uh, it was pretty good. I I like it actually better than regular kettle corn, which I'm not too big uh, too big of a fan of. Um, but it is it's sweet enough to where you only really want a small amount of it. Uh, I ended up getting like a smaller cup of the popcorn um, instead of like you know one of the the larger paper bags, uh, and it's. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a little too sweet to have like a a, a nor- like what you would call, I guess, a normal amount of popcorn when you're at the movie theater. Uh, but it did taste pretty good. I, I do have a, a question for you here, Brad. Yes. Do the popcorn flavors taste different, or do, are they just like colored different and they don't? No. Taste- yeah, they don't like the, the colors. Don't have like a flavor with them or anything like that. It's the the coating itself just tastes like a generic candy coating, basically. By the way, I call BS on that. If you're going to make things I, different colors in food, it should taste different. I agree, because my first question when I saw the popcorn at the theater, I was like, what's the flavor? And they were like, it's basically like a kettle corn. I'm like, oh, so it's not like a colored fla- flavor kind of thing. They were like, no, it's just like a, a an overall flavor from the candy coating. I was like, hmm, okay. Yeah, this is the M&M-ification of America, Brad. <laughs> and then um, a friend of mine found these at a random store. Uh, part of his job, he like hops around to different... Uh, towns doing um estimates for people people's houses when they're getting work done on their houses and they happen to stop at this convenience store and it was like a locally owned place 
and they saw that they had just gotten in this big shipment of these chips that are creamy forest mushroom flavored Lay's chips. They're from uh, another country. Uh, they didn't find out where, but this this woman said that uh, she orders them all the time, and whenever they get a big shipment in, they're gone within like the same week. And so he tried them, and he thought that they were delicious, and he knows how much I like trying uh, random flavors of chips, so he picks them up for me. Uh, and they're they're really good. I didn't think it was going to be great because I'm not a big mushroom person. I, I don't mind mushrooms on my pizza, but I don't really enjoy things like cream of mushroom shoot, soup unless it's part of like green bean casserole at Thanksgiving or something like that. Uh, and these chips actually taste a lot like uh, green bean casserole with, without the, the kind of green bean taste that you get with it. It basically tastes like cream of mushroom soup, but it's uh, they it kind of reminded me a little bit of the biscuits and gravy chips that Lay's came out with um, a while back. I think they might be like a normal thing where you can just find them uh, in stores all the time now. But um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's got uh, you know a hint of mushroom as opposed to just the biscuits and gravy uh, cream style uh, pepper flavor. Um, but they're they're pretty good. I like them. Very cool. That brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find links to all those things that we mentioned in the show notes. This podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and television, as well as deeper dives into the great features from SlashFilm.com. Uh, you can subscribe to Slash Film Daily on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And please send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Uh, yes, Jacob? If you can tell me the name of the book and the author, I will not read from it today. The Gargantuan Book of... Oh, my God. I... <laughs> insult <laughs> insult and affrontery. Damn it, guys. I screwed you this up for us off. Uh, Louis A. Safian. The Gargantuan Book of Insult, Offense, oh, and Affrontery by oh, Louis A. Safian. Offense. I've opened it to the dressed and undressed <laughs> section so this could get sensual. <laughs> if, you, if you have children listening, this is your chance to turn the podcast off. Or up. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> HT, she goes out wearing less than her mother wore in bed. Oh, my. <laughs> Brad. Just as he has given up the hope of finding a perfect fitting dress, he finds he luckily finds one that's two sizes too small. Mm, that's absolutely true. Uh, Chris, at the end of the year, all his friends wish him a happy nude year. <laughs> oh, huh. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait until one of us remembers that, and then like <laughs> January, whatever January first, we're like, Chris, I hope you had a happy nude year, and he's like, What yes. the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Well, Ben, with that strapless gown, it's obvious you're not interested in shouldering any responsibility. Ah, uh, are these all about dresses? Wait, 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 wait a second. Is, is that one sexist? <laughs> this whole I, book I mean, is sexist. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's a dangerous path to go down. There's, later. there's definitely a lot of slut shaming going on in this one. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I need to, I'm trying to find one that fits for Peter, and they're all really mean. <laughs> um, Have at it, Jacob. Have at it. Uh, no one can squeeze more out of bikini than you can. <laughs> Damn. Ooh. I mean, like I opened this page and I th- I thought this book is always old fashioned and sexist, but this chapter was especially old fashioned yeah. and sexist.
I feel I'm... like you should pick one for yourself, Jacob, because you always get off scot-free on these. All right, let me find one for me. Um, reopening up to the bamboozlers section. <laughs> I never put off till tomorrow what I can put over today. What? I don't even get that one. I don't get half so (laughs) (laughs) Well, I pretend to be burying the hatchet when I'm only digging up the dirt. Ooh, take that. I'm sure to leave pussy footprints on the sands of time. (laughs) These jokes are all from a time where it was understood that jokes are funnier when you have to explain them. I'm the type who will sell myself to the highest biddy. Oh, Good wow. lord. It's like getting worse. What? Well, I'm one of those professional reformers who manages to get the pie out of piety. Oh my god. Don't make it kill stop. me. Yeah. When I borrow money, it's not only against the principal to pay the interest, but also against the interest to pay the principal. <laughs> Jacob, you don't have to make up for the weeks of insults you haven't gotten. <laughs> oh god. They call me the accordionist. I play both ends against the middle. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's, we should just have a whole episode where Jacob just sits and reads these to himself. <laughs> they call me corkscrew because I'm so crooked. <laughs> crooked? <laughs> Crug, yeah, crooked. <laughs> oh. They call me the caterpillar. I got where I am by crawling. Okay, I'm sorry. This is my fault. Yeah, good work. 